At the shuttered San Onofre nuclear reactors on the Pacific Ocean in Southern California, it seems easy for the so-called experts in charge of managing decades of highly radioactive spent fuel rods to pretend that their storage system is safe and there's absolutely no danger to local residents. But then you talk with a real expert who explains one of the reasons they can get away with this, and she tells you, I have a copy of the license amendment that approves that they no longer have to measure the radiation level coming out of the air vents, which this is where the levels will be highest from leaking canisters. And they've eliminated the requirement to measure, let alone report, those levels. I requested that information from the NRC, and they refused to answer different people multiple times. Well, if you can't get the facts, you can't prove the problem. And that's why when you hear something like that, along with all the other manipulations of public perception that the nuclear industry is currently running on San Onofre and every other nuclear reactor site in the country, you suddenly become aware that no matter where you are, you are sitting in that dangerously uncomfortable seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, Donna Gilmore of Southern California Safety fills us in on Southern California Edison's latest manipulations of public perception regarding the thin canister storage system for dangerously radioactive spent fuel on site at San Onofre. She includes some choice observations about codependent partners in SCE, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and canister manufacturer Holtec. And to help you understand exactly why nuclear reactors and dump sites and radioactive fuel rods and all the nuclear waste are bad for humans and other living things, we hear Dr. Gordon Edwards of the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility explain what radiation is and what it does. You will learn the reason behind why so many of us fight so long and so hard against nuclear. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest information than will make it into the mainstream media this week. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, October 29, 2019, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting out in Japan, where as a follow-up to last week's interview about the Minano data site and their citizens' radiation data map of Japan, the group is now accepting sludge samples from areas affected by recent flooding after Typhoon Hagabit 
because flood water may have brought radioactive material from areas affected by radioactive fallout after the Fukushima disaster. Also, there is the more recent flooding as landslides ripped through waterlogged areas in Chiba, east of Tokyo, and Fukushima, northeast of the capital. In some places, unleashing a month's worth of rain in half a day. The peaceful faith-based disarmament activists on April 4, 2018, used a bolt cutter to enter a remote gate at the naval base Kings Bay in St. Mary's, Georgia. They walked two miles through swamp and bush, then split into three groups and prayed, poured their own blood from baby bottles, spray-painted messages against nuclear weapons, hammered on parts of a shrine to nuclear missiles, hung banners, and waited to be arrested. For this, they face more than 20 years in prison for destruction and depredation of government property in excess of $1,000, trespassing, and conspiracy. I can think of sitting members of Congress who have committed far worse crimes and are getting off with it. We'll have more on the Kings Bay Plowshare 7 and how you can sign a petition in their support during today's activist shout-out. A rundown of recent activists. In Columbia, South Carolina, the Westinghouse Columbia Nuclear Fabrication Facility, which has a history of leaks, spills, and other mishaps, was forced to send three workers to the hospital when they were cleaning equipment without the proper safety equipment on them. Further inspections showed that the plant didn't have proper safety equipment at all. At the Peach Bottom Nuclear Plant, only 36 miles away from Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania, an admittedly degraded piece of equipment triggered a shutdown and caused the NRC to issue a declaration of an unusual event, which is not unusual. It's step one on the NRC's four-step identification system between, oops, we have a problem, to kiss your posterior behind. In Ohio, the Zahn's Corner Middle School in Pike County, Ohio, is fenced off and the school remains closed after traces of enriched uranium were found there last May. Now the Department of Energy says an independent company will test a six-mile radius around the former Portsmouth Gaseous Diffusion Plant, believed to be the source of this radioactivity. In the southwest, the All-Pueblo Council of Governors, which represents 20 sovereign Pueblo nations in New Mexico and Texas, has adopted a resolution opposing license applications from two private companies to transport and store nuclear waste in Lee County, New Mexico, and Andrews County, Texas. These are the proposed so-called interim waste storage sites that are referred to in today's interview with Donna Gilmore. And now... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. Nobel laureate Gerard Moreau is using his notoriety to call attention to the possibility that he says there is to transmute nuclear waste into a safer form using lasers. Why lasers? Maybe because that's what he got his Nobel Prize in physics for, along with Donna Strickland. The pair invented a process with very short laser pulses at high intensity, which were intended for use with laser manufacturing and eye surgery. So, of course, the obvious next step is using it on nuclear waste. Of course, even Moreau admits that you'd need to increase the pulse rate by roughly mm, 10,000 times 
And other experts have chimed in to note that while the physics makes sense on a theoretical level, the logistics of developing the right laser technology, separating out radioactive nuclei, and irradiating them are still a wee bit beyond our reach. Yeah, think? I guess Moreau is widening his opportunities for grants. And with all the nuclear money that's out there, I'm sure this will be a moneymaker for him. But not a solution. And that's why, Nobel laureate Gerard Moreau, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of the week. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, you appreciate hearing the nuclear news on Nuclear Hot Seat, don't you? We do everything to make it palatable while sticking to verifiable facts. Yes, there's humor, puns, literary allusions, funny voices. I have got absolutely no shame about using my show business background to do what needs to be done to put the message across. But that's just the window dressing. The core of Nuclear Hot Seat is honest information, hardcore interviews, and shout-outs to activists and activities opposing nuclear around the world. So where else would you get all this in one easy-to-swallow weekly package? Unless you're as obsessive about going online and searching out this information as I am, probably nowhere else. So help keep Nuclear Hot Seat going. The show runs on donations, and without your support, we can't continue. And trust me, you will never be getting this much nuclear information from any of the mainstream media outlets. So pardon my intrusion into the info stream of this show, but I want you to think about helping Nuclear Hot Seat get up and running and take action. Take it right now. Make a donation of any size. It's easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. That's how you can make a donation of any size as a one-time gift or set up a continuing donation of any size. With this help, we'll be able to continue bringing you this kind of reliable nuclear information, and you'll get it from the longest-running program of its type in the world. Know that whatever you do to help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now, here are this week's featured interviews. I think much of the reluctance to take action on nuclear issues is because people don't understand the nature of radioactivity and the damage it does to our bodies, our DNA, and our future. This information has been blanked out of most stories on atomic and nuclear subjects, starting with the first series of articles on the atomic bomb after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and continuing on to today. As a result, most people don't understand what radiation is and what it does. To help clear that up, Nuclear Hot Seat is happy to share with you a speech given by Dr. Gordon Edwards of the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility, or CCNR. It's a 10-minute talk prepared for the Science for Peace Forum, How to Save the World in a Hurry, that was held at the University of Toronto on May 30, 2018. This is a brief masterclass on the difference between radiation and radioactivity, the exact mechanism radionuclides take, and how they damage our health. In this speech, Dr. Edwards makes some quick references to Canadian issues. 
Pickering is a nuclear-generating station on the north shore of Lake Ontario. Bruce is Bruce Nuclear Generating Station on the eastern shore of Lake Huron in Ontario. Poor Ontario. And can-do is not a can-do attitude, but the can-do, C-A-N-D-U, which is a Canadian nuclear reactor design. Here's Dr. Edwards. Because a crippled nuclear reactor is dangerous, not due to its invisible rays, but because it disseminates harmful radioactive pollutants. So I prefer to use the word radioactivity rather than radiation. So what is radioactivity? Well, it's not a thing, but a property of certain materials. While there are a handful of significant naturally occurring radioactive materials, there are over 1,000 human-made radioactive materials. Most of these were not seen in nature in measurable amounts prior to 1939. When they talk about background radiation, it doesn't include most of these materials. They are created in large quantities as byproducts of nuclear fission, whether in bombs or in nuclear reactors. Each of these hundreds of radioactive elements has its own particular physical and chemical properties, therefore each following its own distinct ecological pathways through the environment and biochemical pathways through the body. Every radioactive atom has an unstable nucleus that will eventually disintegrate or explode, giving off one or two subatomic projectiles. And of course, the Becquerel unit of radioactivity indicates one disintegration is occurring every second. Each radioactive emission coming directly from the nucleus is one of four kinds, an alpha particle, a beta particle, a gamma ray, or a neutron. These projectiles are all ionizing, meaning that they are able to break molecular bonds quite easily, thereby killing or crippling nearby living cells. If the cell is crippled, it can reproduce and possibly develop into a uh, biologically harmful cluster later in life, which we generally call cancer. Alpha and beta particles are primarily internal hazards because they are less penetrating whereas gamma rays and neutrons are both external as well as internal hazards because they are highly penetrating. A large exposure to any of these types of radioactive emissions can cause death within days or weeks, while chronic low-level exposures over time can cause cancers years later. Damage to eggs or sperm can lead to genetically defective offspring, as Richard mentioned. Such defects can appear in the immediate offspring or in several generations after the original cellular damage. Chronic exposure to radioactivity can also compromise the immune system, increase the incidence of cardiovascular diseases, cause a decrease in intelligence among young children, and uh, as Richard also mentioned, accelerate the aging process. Most sources of radiation, uh, non-ionizing or ionizing, in our experience, can be shut off with a switch. An x-ray machine, a microwave oven, a tanning bulb, all can be turned off quickly. And once they are off, they are absolutely harmless. Not so with radioactivity. Radioactivity is, in fact, a form of nuclear energy that cannot be shut off. That is why meltdowns can occur even after a nuclear reactor is completely shut down. Three Mile Island and Fukushima are examples of this. Ongoing radioactive disintegrations in the core of the reactor provide enormous heat and drive the temperature of the fuel up to 2,800 degrees Celsius, twice the melting point of steel, just due to radioactive disintegrations alone. 
At that temperature, the ceramic fuel begins to melt like candle wax. Because radioactivity cannot be shut off, the effects of radioactive contamination can be very long lasting, leaving, for example, no man's lands around the Chernobyl site, the Fukushima site, the Marshall Islands test areas, and the site of the Kishtim disaster over 60 years ago in the Ural Mountains of the USSR. When it comes to radioactive waste, since radioactivity cannot be shut off or rendered harmless, waste disposal is actually a euphemism for waste abandonment. Nuclear agencies say that waste disposal means that they have no intention to retrieve the stuff. But that's not a scientific definition, that's a political definition. In fact, there is no scientific definition of disposal. The long-term confinement of radioactive post-fission waste remains an unsolved problem of mammoth proportions. Catastrophe potential. In 1976, British nuclear physicist Sir Brian Flowers wrote a report for the UK government on nuclear energy and the environment. In it, he pointed out that if nuclear energy had been deployed in Europe before the outbreak of World War II, then large parts of Europe would be uninhabitable today because of World War II. That's because Chernobyl-like meltdowns can be brought about by acts of malice, warfare, or sabotage, even if the reactor is shut down. It is estimated that the Chernobyl accident released about 80,000 terabecquerels of cesium-137, just one of the many radioactive materials released. A becquerel is one disintegration per second, as I mentioned, and of course a terabecquerel is a million, million becquerels. For 20 years after the Chernobyl accident, sheep farmers in Northern England and Wales could not freely sell their sheep meat for human consumption because of residual radioactive contamination by cesium-137 from Chernobyl. To this day, wild boars killed by hunters in Germany, Sweden, and Belarus are unfit for human consumption because of radioactive cesium contamination. The same thing is observed with wild boars in the Fukushima area of Japan. Cesium-137 is a powerful emitter of penetrating gamma rays as well as a gamma emitter. Ground concentrations of cesium-137 are often used to decide which areas need to be evacuated. Around Chernobyl, it is expected that land in a 30-kilometer radius will be uninhabitable for at least 300 years. Now, just think, there are 2.5 million people living within 30 kilometers of Pickering. Can you imagine that radius, those families being permanently displaced, and that that land would become uninhabitable for centuries? A single irradiated can-do fuel bundle, freshly discharged from the reactor, can deliver a 100% lethal dose of radiation to any unshielded human at a distance of one meter in about 20 seconds. And there are over 2,500 such bundles in each Pickering reactor. Moreover, there are over 400,000 irradiated fuel bundles in the Pickering spent fuel pools underwater being cooled because they continue to generate heat. They have to be cooled for about 10 years. This pool, these pools contain at least 4 million terabecquerels of cesium-137. That's 50 times the amount of cesium-137 that was released from Chernobyl, which was about 80,000 terabecquerels. 
Now, if, for example, God forbid, a nuclear explosion were to occur near the Pickering plant, the water in the pool would be vaporized by the fireball, the zirconium metal cladding on the fuel bundles would catch fire, and virtually all of the cesium-137 would escape into the atmosphere in the form of radioactive vapors and aerosol particles. That would create a no-man's land of mammoth proportions by releasing 50 times more cesium-137 than the amount released from the Chernobyl disaster. And these spent fuel pools, not only at Pickering, but all around the world, are not protected with very heavy structures, unlike the dome of the reactor uh, building, which is very thick concrete. Uh, this is not the case with spent fuel pools. So uh, frightening as these considerations are, we have to think about the long-lasting implications. At Fukushima, seven years after the triple meltdown, now we're seven years later, there are some 800,000 tons of radioactively contaminated water that the nuclear authorities would like to simply dump into the Pacific Ocean. In fact, they're building one new 300-ton tank for every four days. They used to be building one per day about four years, three years ago. They have now removed about 70 different species of radionuclides from this water, but they cannot remove the radioactive tritium. That's because radioactive tritium is chemically identical to ordinary hydrogen. It is incredibly difficult to separate a radioactive isotope from a non-radioactive isotope of the same element because chemically they're like Siamese twins. Wherever one goes, the other one goes. Tritium is radioactive hydrogen and it forms radioactive water molecules which are identical with ordinary water molecules except that they are radioactive. No municipal water treatment plant can remove the tritium because you cannot filter water from water. Also, because hydrogen is one of the most common elements in living things, being present in all organic molecules, for example, including DNA molecules, radioactive tritium becomes incorporated into all living things, and some fraction of it is organically bound into all sorts of molecules in the body. It has been known for decades that tritium is at least three times more biologically harmful than gamma radiation per unit of energy absorbed by tissue, but our nuclear regulator pays no attention to that fact. Indeed, two independent scientific bodies appointed by the government of Ontario have found that the permissible levels of tritium in drinking water is about 350 times too high currently in Canada compared with other cancer-causing agents that are regulated. But again, our nuclear regulatory machinery pays no attention to such inconvenient scientific truths. But this example of tritium points to a much larger problem. Nuclear fission creates radioactive versions of many elements that are otherwise non-radioactive, such as cesium, strontium, silver, tellurium, magnesium, and countless others. Once these radioactive varieties are disseminated into the environment in significant quantities, they become inseparable from the non-radioactive varieties. While most of the naturally occurring radionuclides like uranium, thorium, radium, and polonium are chemically distinct and can therefore be separated out by chemical means from non-radioactive materials, such is not the case with the deluge of human-made radioactive elements created by fission. Already, it is proving very difficult to find uncontaminated metals with which to fabricate radiation monitors such as Geiger counters. Evidently, if the metal from which the monitor is made is already radioactive, it will interfere with the operation of the machine, 
making it increasingly difficult to determine where the radioactive emissions are coming from. There are many other important topics about radioactivity, but time does not permit. I'll just mention two of them. Uh, number one, half-lives can be very deceptive. As some radioactive materials become more radioactive as time goes on, not less, examples are, include radon gas, depleted uranium, and even irradiated nuclear fuel after 50,000 years. And plutonium, which has a 24,000-year half-life, when it disintegrates, transforms into another material, which has a 700-million-year half-life. So half-lives can be defective, de deceptive. Excuse me. The second point is that some radioactive materials are very difficult to detect, even in a well-equipped nuclear plant, because they give off non-penetrating radiation, yet they can be extraordinarily dangerous inside the body. Examples are carbon-14 dust, which workers at Pickering tracked into their homes in the 1980s, and plutonium-bearing dust, which over 500 contract workers inhaled on a daily basis for almost three weeks at Bruce in 2009. Dr. Gordon Edwards of the Canadian Coalition on Nuclear Responsibility. And if this information went by a little too fast for you to get all of it, don't despair. We have a full transcript of Dr. Edwards' talk available and linked on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 436. Now, radioactivity and what it invisibly does to us is why all things nuclear are dangerous. From mining and refining uranium, to manufacturing fuel rods, to running nuclear reactors, to the forever problem of highly radioactive nuclear waste that results. And how is this deadly waste being handled and stored to prevent contamination and damage to life in all its many forms? With care, concern, and strategic long-term thinking? <laughs> Our next guest knows a lot of the ugly truths about the nuclear industry and what it's been saying and what it's been doing or not doing. She has been a watchdog on issues at the San Onofre nuclear reactors in Southern California for decades. Donna Gilmore is the founder of San Onofre Safety, a public resource for factual information about the serious safety issues with the San Onofre nuclear generating station and the tons of nuclear waste stored just a few miles south of San Clemente, California, which is just a little ways up the coast from San Diego. Donna's been a regular resource on Nuclear Hot Seat since we first began in 2011. This time, we spoke on Friday, October 25th, 2019. Donna Gilmore, it's always great to have you with us on Nuclear Hot Seat. I'm really glad you invited me. This is critical information that everyone needs to know. For people who may not have been following San Onofre and might be new to Nuclear Hot Seat, give us a rundown on what the situation has been at San Onofre with the current storage system for highly radioactive spent nuclear fuel rods and what the problems are with it. Southern California Edison is using thin stainless steel canisters. They're a little over five eighths inches thick and they've designed a system that is uninspectable even on the outside, unmaintainable, is subject to corrosion and cracking from the ocean and other environmental causes. And they have no way to maintain these 
or monitor them to prevent major radioactive releases. Other than that, they're fine. <laughs> That's like saying, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, what did you think of the play? Right. You know, this isn't nuclear science. I mean, it, it, this is common sense. You wouldn't buy a car that you couldn't inspect, maintain, and monitor and gave you no warning before something major was going wrong. But this is how they're storing nuclear waste. And outrageously, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is giving them permission to do this. It's putting profits over our safety. That's what's going on. And it's going on all over the country. There's over 3,000 of these canisters already installed. Give people an idea of how much radiation there is in each canister how long that radiation is deadly for, and how long the canisters are certified by the NRC. Some of the radiation, uh, radioactive materials in these canisters have to be protected from mankind over a million years. Just in the, the cesium-137, which has, well, it's got about a lifespan of 300 years. That's just one of the elements. There's enough cesium-137 in there to, to be equivalent to the amount released from the Chernobyl nuclear disaster in 1986. Just one canister is basically a Chernobyl disaster in each can. So this is very serious. And the canisters are certified by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission initially to be good for 20 years. The manufacturer gives zero warranty for any environmental or corrosion failure modes. So there's literally no warranty on these things. And this is what Edison's thought. The NRC was hoping there would be a way to inspect and repair and maintain these after 20 years, but there isn't. And Lee Brookhart, an NRC senior engineer, said it is impossible to inspect these canisters according to American standards, ASME codes. Impossible. Lee Brookhart also said that Edison is really asking for canisters that don't have to be inspected or repaired. And yet, when the NRC's own staff tells them that, they approved continued loading more of these canisters right here at San Onofre. So we have a Nuclear Regulatory Commission that is not doing their job, so we're going to have to get involved. We have no choice if we want to protect our future. And some of these cans are already at San Onofre, they're already 16 years old. And the NRC says once a crack starts in one of these canisters, it can grow through the wall in 16 years. And they have no plan to prevent that or no plan after it happens. There has also been at least one near miss of a catastrophic accident while these canisters were being loaded. It took place in August of 2018, and we only learned about it because of a whistleblower. Tell us about that. These canisters, the new ones, are made by Holtec. They used a very archaic system for loading these canisters into storage holes. And it actually scrapes the walls as it's being downloaded. Every canister downloaded into these storage holes, it scrapes and gouges the sides of the canister as they go down. In August of 2018, at a community engagement panel meeting that Edison puts on to tell us what's going on at the plant, 
a whistleblower came forward to speak during the public comment period. He told us they almost dropped one of these 54 ton canisters 17 or 18 feet. And it silenced everybody. He, he, and he said it was the second time it had happened, not the first time. It's just a big cover up. He didn't want to talk about this. His daughter wanted him to bring this up if Edison didn't share. Edison told us during the meeting that they were given the employees a much needed break. And then the whistleblower comes forward and says, no, that's not what happened. They almost dropped a canister. So work was stopped on the site because of this accident, and it wasn't as Edison said, oh, we're just giving them some time off. No, no. Edison didn't tell us. The crowd just like was frozen in silence. And, and he went on to say, there is no safety behind those gates from Holtec, from Edison. I mean, it's not only did they almost drop a canister, it's a totally mismanaged facility. That was shocking. So the, the NRC came and investigated, and in spite of all the evidence they found, and in spite of the fact that we learned, I learned, that Holtec, the company that makes this, uh, this canister system, the system is designed where the canister, as it's going in the hole, not only can it get caught on a ledge inside, they call it a guide ring, it actually scrapes the walls of the canister as it's being lowered into the storage hold. It's a very ancient pendulum Tarzan type of loading system with only about a quarter inch clearance around this ring. And there's no way the workers can keep it from wobbling and scraping all the way down. So we have brand new canisters that are being gouged the entire length of the walls. And the NRC actually allowed them to start loading them again with full knowledge that they usually are being scraped and grouched and scratched. It's, it's, it's just outrageous. And there's the other fact that the canisters are only certified for 20 years, whereas the waste inside is radioactive for hundreds of thousands, if not more years. Yeah, over a million years. The NRC gives a 20-year license to use these canisters, and they close their eyes and pretend anything that needs to work after 20 years, well, that's outside the scope of this license. So they, they don't even consider any aging issues or corrosion issues that might cause these containers to fail. Now, the older ones we have, they're getting close to their 20 years, and the NRC has actually approved other similar canisters of our older above-ground system, they've actually approved them for additional 40 years without the ability to inspect and maintain. And in terms of a warranty, the warranty for the new ones is just for manufacturing defects. There is zero warranty for corrosion or any other kind of degradation in this system. Zero. And this company, Holtec, president is Chris Singh, He's going around telling our elected officials, these are good for 300 years, 100 years, even 10,000 years, you know, if they're in a dry environment. He's just telling these lies that are getting believed by our elected officials. And that's, that's one of the problems that we face here. One would think that with the kind of information you just shared, all of which is verifiable, all of which is known, that it would be enough to halt 
this waste storage process indefinitely while either the problems were worked out or a new solution was found and instituted in its stead. But that's not the case. And that has led to considerable citizen pushback in the San Onofre area. Tell us about that. We just had a California Coastal Commission meeting. The Coastal Commission gave a permit for this system to be installed. They knew at the time that these canisters could not be inspected or repaired. They knew at the time, but the NRC director of the Spent Fuel Management Division, he showed up at the meeting and he gave them hope that these problems would be figured out. And they put special conditions on the permit that said you need to be able to inspect and maintain these containers so that they are transportable. Because eventually, you know, with sea rise and coastal erosion, these can't stay right next to the beach. And we had a hearing last week. And the Coastal Commission gave Edison another permit where they're going to be able to tear down these spent fuel pools which is the only approved method to replace these canisters. You, initially, the fuel is in these pools of water called spent fuel pools, and they have to stay there and cool for years. And then they moved them to the dry storage containers. And then if there's a problem with the container, theoretically, they're supposed to be able to put them back in the pool so you can move the fuel to another container. The Coastal Commission actually gave them a permit to tear out the pools knowing they have no other option at the facility to replace canisters and at the coastal commission we provided evidence to the commissioners from the nrc from edison where they admitted in writing that it's impossible to inspect the canisters and Edison's claim of doing some kind of a visual inspection and saying, oh, well, they're okay, they're not damaged that much, I mean, was, was proved false by their own evidence. We had all this hard evidence. And then Chairman Bochco, at the end of the meeting, brings Edison, Tom Palmazano, up to the podium and says, can these canisters be inspected? He said, yes. Have they been inspected? He said, yes. Can they be repaired? He says, yes. All lies, all lies. You know, it's like the fix was in. And I don't know who they're listening to, who they're believing. My suspicion is Edison has convinced them that we have no other options. But that is absolutely not true. You know, our regulators and elected officials are believing the wrong experts. That is a core problem that we have here. With the approval to pull out the spent fuel pools, which are like the last line fail-safe if something goes wrong to have some place to put the really hot, radioactive, dangerous fuel rods from the canisters. With the approval to pull it out, it almost seems like between the Coastal Commission and Southern California Edison and the NRC, they're painting Southern California into a radioactive corner from which we will not be able to get out. There will be no workable options. What kind of outrage, what kind of action, what kind of legal steps are being taken by people around the San Onofre area, such as yourself, who are outraged by this and intent that it cannot proceed in this way? We have to be able to convince the people that are the decision makers that this is 
a major catastrophe, not just for California, but we're talking about something that can destabilize California's economy, the nation's economy, and the world economy. This is not minor. And we're looking for ways to find credible experts that are elected officials and the bond analysts and you know all the people that can influence Edison and the elected officials that make the laws that what we're saying is true and this can really happen. That, that's been the challenge. We'll try and find uh, independent experts to speak that are credible and Holtec pays them off or they threaten lawsuits. So you, you end up with people that learn how they're storing waste. Say, for example, a material engineer or physicist, credible people, and they will learn and be shocked about how they're storing the waste, but then they get threatened or bribed and they're too afraid to speak up. The whistleblower at Stan and Mofrey told me that he was the only one that would speak up. The other people knew what was going on but they were too afraid to speak up. They didn't want to lose their job. Whistleblowers don't do well when they speak up. So we're still working on that. So basically we need, you know, we need public outrage. What, one of the problems now that's happening is when we worked on shutting down San Onofre, it was very simple. You either wanted it on or you wanted it off. Very simple message, easy to get people behind. You know, they wanted to restart a broken nuclear reactors. That was easy in comparison. At the time, we didn't know it. <laughs> now we have a divide in the community. Some people just say, get it out of here. You know, this is really bad. Just get it out of here. What they don't understand is this stuff can't be moved in these containers. It's not even feasible. And no matter where you move it, you still have the problem. And, you know, we're talking Chernobyl-level containers here. So moving it to some other state or location, the problem is still there unless we get a good containment for this waste. So what we're doing is we're saying, step one, we have to recontain, repackage this fuel into containers that can be inspected and maintained and monitored in a manner to prevent major radioactive releases. It sounds simple, but what's happened with our elected officials is it's easy to get money and get votes if you promise a community you're going to get their waste out of here, even though it isn't even possible to get out of here. In order to get this waste out of here, assuming these canisters could actually be moved without leaking, uh, you're talking about going through Los Angeles with this on the rail system, okay? And there's the NRC is still studying whether train vibrations is going to be enough to cause this old fuel brittle fuel rods to fall apart. So transportation isn't really easy. And our infrastructure is not good. And I need to point out that when it is mentioned anything at all in connection with the dangers of shipping the waste to New Mexico or Texas, people have to realize that there is no facility in either New Mexico or Texas, and in both locations, especially in New Mexico, there is huge opposition to what is being called an interim waste storage site, which will probably de facto just become permanent storage if it's allowed to happen. They don't want it. And there are a lot of legal challenges that are taking place even to the thought of doing this. So really, 
even people saying we want to get this waste out of here we want to get it away there is no a way to get it to it doesn't exist it's a fiction the important thing people need to understand is we in this community where the waste is we have no authority to tell some other location to take the waste it's up to them to want to receive it it's not within our power to shove this on some other community even if it was technically feasible and that's what people don't know and you mentioned new mexico but texas i mean in the areas where they want to put it not too far from carlsbad new mexico and then in texas close by over the border you're talking about the permian oil basin which is a major oil and gas supply for the country so the oil and gas industry is going to fight you from putting it there the navy doesn't want it on camp pendleton so even if you put it someplace there or some other place some people have recommended some military installations the military doesn't want it they've been really good about making the waste and giving it to somebody else they're real good at that that's not going to work and yucca mountain which is, which is in the law to be the geological solution to the waste isn't even a viable site. In fact, the Nuclear Waste Technical Review Board had speakers from around the world that are trying to make a geological underground repository work. They admit it. They don't have the technology to make that work for 10 years, let alone long-term, and they have no idea how they're ever going to figure it out. This whole idea of a geological repository, a once-and-done bury-it scenario, it was a big con from the nuclear industry. I have some insider contacts that were there from the beginning that are now retired. And they said, Donna, this was just a big con. We had to tell Congress this wasn't going to cost anything. Ratepayers are going to pay to store it in Yucca Mountain underground, and it's a one-time cost. It will cost you, we'll, we'll do nuclear energy. It won't cost you a dime, Congress. This is like free. you know." And they bought it, and they're still buying it. And, and a lot of the activists actually are still believers that there actually can be a geological repository solution. That is not true, and there's tons of evidence to support that it's not true. So we're stuck with this waste and are going to have to have this continued stewardship to maintain this waste for as long as we can. You know, we, we maybe have a solution for one or 200, 300 years, but I'm not convinced that we have a solution for past that. So people need to stop focusing on who gets this waste. You know, we're playing musical chairs here. Who gets the waste and focus on how it's contained so it's in the safest containers possible stored in a, a building like they do at Fukushima and in Germany and Japan and other countries where they store these thick wall 10 to 19 and three quarter inch thick metal casts and they put them in buildings for additional environmental and security protection and they have continuous monitoring so they can maintain them before there's radioactive leaks. This is what we need to do but everybody wants to focus on the where including Congress and I think most of Congress has good intentions. They are just being lied to about the reality of this. Our Democratic and Republican leaderships needs to be educated. Whoever the bondholders and shareholders that control these utilities need to know that they're being set up for major economic catastrophe. But right now they're believing, they're all believing the wrong people. So the challenge 
is to have the credible people and have it believed with a solution to recontainerize this waste so that we don't end up destroying our country. This is a national security issue on top of everything else. When we get good media attention, Edison goes in and threatens these publications and all of a sudden we don't get the word out. So people have no way to know this unless they go looking for it. It's very difficult. We could use some kind of national public figure that always gets quoted to messages. So we having our, one of our biggest challenges is getting to high volume people. In terms of your work and San Onofre Safety, the group that you are with is one of several that has taken a stand on San Onofre and each are pursuing perhaps slightly different pathways, but each with the common goal of making certain that this waste is safe. For you, what are your next steps or what are your intentions moving forward to make a difference? One of the things we're doing is recruiting experts that are credible to be our spokesperson with Congress and with others so that people know what the truth is. Right now there's legislation, there's an appropriation bill where they're trying to allocate money to start pilot consolidated interim storage facilities. And unfortunately, one of the first words is, notwithstanding the Nuclear Waste Policy Act, basically they're trying to negate the current law. The current law, Nuclear Waste Policy Act, requires monitored retrievable fuel storage, requires safe storage and the safe transport requirements in it. This appropriation bill, with just those words, notwithstanding the Nuclear Waste Policy Act, would negate all those requirements and, and set a stage for transporting cracking canisters that may not make the trip. Oh, get, the, get this. This is, this is crazy. I've studied the proposed New Mexico-Texas facility plans. They're trying to get a license from the NRC right now to build a facility. If a canister arrives, they put the canister in thick wall transport cast. If the canister arrives leaking in New Mexico or Texas, they're going to return to sender. And what are we going to do with it? That is the plan, return to sender. There's a lot of insanity or madness, I think is a better term for it, within the nuclear industry, within the nuclear, pro-nuclear community. And this is just another piece of evidence for that. Unfortunately, it puts us all at risk. And I have likened what's happening at San Onofre to terrorists burying a bunch of dirty bombs on the beach in Southern California with perhaps very long fuses on them, but fuses that will eventually ignite and we will eventually have a leak a cracked canister, a something. And when that radiation comes out, the magnitude of contamination for Southern California with all of its industries and agriculture and ports and tourism and all the rest will be history. And that's going to take a lot down with it. Yes. Now, what I want to mention is what San Onofre Safety, the website, sanofresafety.org, this is an educational website. It takes this complicated stuff that's going on, the complicated language, and what's really going on, and 
and not the propaganda and puts it out so that the public can know what's really going on and they can share that information so we can get the word out. So it's kind of like a MythBuster site. It basically tells you the truth, gives you the details. Everything has a technical reference to an NRC or National Lab or all credible sites. This is not a tree hugger site. It's bipartisan because whether you're pro-nuclear, anti-nuclear, we're all pro-safety. This has become the go-to place in the country for people wanting to know the truth about how nuclear waste is being stored in this country and exactly what's happening. I encourage people to go take a look and they can contact me through San Onofre Safety. But take a look at that. And one of the things we do is we do go to city councils and get them to pass resolutions. It's a way to raise awareness and having our cities represent us to the other elected officials at the higher level. It's a way to get media attention. So we're, we have a grassroots method of extending the word. Donna, you've been fighting the good fight regarding San Onofre for many years now. Decades. And you continue to do so, obviously. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your diligence. And thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks a lot for having me. Hopefully people will share this with others. Donna Gilmore of San Onofre Safety. You can check out everything you need to know about the truth of what's going on at San Onofre by going to her website, sananofresafety.org. That's not the only group that's fighting against San Onofre right now. And an update on public watchdogs, which on October 21st filed an emergency petition for a writ of mandamus. This emergency request to the Ninth District Court of Appeals seeks a writ that will compel the United States Nuclear Regulatory Commission to halt the burial of nuclear waste on the beach at San Onofre Nuclear Generating Station in a tsunami inundation zone near a major earthquake fault line in, quote, canisters that are damaged, defective, and not properly designed. Executive Director Charles Langley wants you to know that, quote, we are fighting hammer and tong. If you would like to read the entire writ of mandamus, it's a 1,600-page document. We'll link to it on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 436. Activist shout-out! A reminder of the Kings Bay Plowshares petition, an urgent request that you join with distinguished global supporters, including... Archbishop Desmond Tutu, other Nobel laureates, and many others by signing the global petition to dismiss all charges against the Kings Bay Plowshares 7. We will have a link to the petition up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, again, episode 436. Here's today's final thought, and it's taken from a post that was written by Linda Pence Gunter of Beyond Nuclear. She writes, During the Kings Bay Plowshares 7 trial, defendant Claire Grady reminded the court that we are using nuclear weapons right now, even if they aren't fired, just like, quote, a cocked gun pointed at the head of the planet. And in E. Martin Schatz's article, which is running in the current Beyond Nuclear International, he makes the same argument that, quote, nuclear war does not begin with the weapons going off. It ends with the weapons going off. 
Thus, the existence of nuclear weapons forces us to think of nuclear war as beginning prior to their being exploded. Nuclear war must be seen as a process, a process in which the weapons are developed, tested, and deployed, a process in which war propaganda conditions the population to believe other countries are their enemies. Looked at from this vantage point, we must recognize that we are in a nuclear war right now. It's a brilliant article by Schatz, and we will link to it, of course, on our website. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, October 29, 2019. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, miningawareness.wordpress.com, Beyond Nuclear International, publicherald.org, thestate.com, wchstv, krqe.com, yorkdispatch.com, NBC Philadelphia, extremetech.com, thebulletin.org, Greenpeace Russia, washingtontimes.com, yesilgazette.com, and the completely captured and neutered Nuclear Regulatory Commission. A reminder that Nuclear Hot Seat is available on all your favorite podcast platforms, so subscribe, plug in, and listen. That's what people have been doing in 123 countries on six continents, and we're still going after Antarctica. For those of you who would rather get Nuclear Hot Seat through an email link, we send it out every week. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down for the yellow box, and sign up for the weekly email We promise we will not bug you with further email. You'll just get the one a week with the link and a short listing of what some of the subjects are going to be in it. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, I mean it. Send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. Please, Facebook's a lousy way to get that information to me because it doesn't stick around long. Email is better. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to send a donation of any size to NuclearHotSeat.com. We've got that donate button on the website, and we will be really grateful for your support. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that radioactive nuclear waste is deadly forever which means there's no way nuclear energy could possibly be clean, green, or sustainable, no matter what the industry and its high-priced lobbyists say. There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.